Hello and welcome to another episode of that 60s recording podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Okay, this week is the third lecture in our series of Ted Fletcher Lectures. Fletcher Lectures. Blumenek, this has taken me four attempts to say, and uh, I'm not giving up, but that's acceptable. Fletcher. I keep saying Fletcher, which I suppose... Anyway, I'm not going to go into this anymore. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying listening to these. Um, as I have kind of said previously, if there's some information that washes over you, I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, a lot of this is incredibly uh, sort of physics related, you know, he gave these lectures at, at universities. And I think that's kind of a good thing for us to broaden, uh, you know, as, as sort of audio people to broaden our understandings of all of these. And I personally am particularly interested in it, given someone like Ted designed all of this incredible gear. And I, I love getting that little um, sort of insight into, I you know, A, how his mind works, but B, how the mind of, of all these, you know, people that I've spoken to across the podcast um, work, you know, that's, what level of understanding is needed to produce, you know, the Poltec EQ or the Joe Meek VC2 or, um, you know, the Manly gear or any of the other people that I've spoken to. So I really do love that. And I love the the, the fact that it washes over you, but then you gradually begin to understand it um, the more and more you listen and the more you look into this stuff. Um, so, yeah, I really do hope that you're enjoying it. Um, could I ask a quick favour before we dive in? If you are enjoying this... Um, and you want to support the podcast, there's a couple of ways you can do that. First of all, you can scroll down if you're listening to this on Apple Music and just give it a rating. Um, literally, just scroll down to the bottom of the podcast and it takes two seconds. You don't even have to write anything and all of that kind of stuff helps. Um, you could write some some things if you wanted, um, but yes, you don't have to. Um, the other thing you can do is share it around. And the final thing you can do is you can visit my website, all you need is drums, and buy a lovely enamel mug that all goes towards supporting this podcast. Before we dive in, uh, I just want to caveat this podcast, as Ted has asked me to, just to say that these episodes, um, these lectures, should I, I should say, were recorded, some of them 20-odd years ago, and obviously uh, sort of a lot of time has passed since then. And Ted just wanted me to give that context of the the time and what the lectures were for uh, so that you knew that as you're listening to it. You know, this particular lecture was given in January 2006 at the City of Westminster College. So just to give you a sort of an idea and a basis as to what these were originally intended for, they certainly weren't intended to be read out on a podcast. Um, so there we go. Um, okay, so we're just going to crack on with this next one. I hope you enjoy it and I'll see you on the other side. Natural sound, distortions, compression, and images. Simple harmonic motion. When I was learning physics, the lecturer used to say, there's nothing simple about simple harmonic motion. From the maths point of view, he's probably right. But in the natural world, simple harmonic motion is the basis of all movement and sound. When the wind blows a stalk of corn, the stem bends. And then, because it has some weight of its own, it bends a little more, further than the wind would blow it. Then it springs back again, beyond where it would have rested. That all seems simple, 
because it's so natural. We all see the effect every day in everything we do. The easiest model to demonstrate and understand simple harmonic motion is a spring and a weight. When the weight is pulled down below its resting place and then released, it will spring back to its original resting place and then go beyond it, setting up an oscillation. The oscillation gradually dies down because of air resistance and a resistance to deformation in the spring. Its position, x, as a function of time, t, is where a is the amplitude of motion, the distance from the centre of motion to either extreme, t is the period of motion, the time for one complete cycle of the motion. If you could attach a pencil to the weight and pull a piece of paper across the weight as it was bouncing, the line you would get is a sine wave. All the physics courses treat simple harmonic motion like this. For the purposes of the maths, the assumptions are that the elasticity of the spring is perfect and that there is no air resistance or that the oscillations will die down because the air resistance and the modules of elasticity are constant functions. But that's not quite true. And this is where simple harmonic motion has its relevance in the world of understanding quality audio. During the oscillation of the spring and the weight, when the spring is elongating, the resistance to deformation of the spring increases slightly as the spring becomes longer. Then, as the weight moves upwards, that resistance to deforming in the metal becomes less. What I'm really saying is that while the weight seems to follow that perfect mathematical format, in reality it deviates slightly. The same thing happens to a greater or lesser extent with all things that oscillate, and in the natural world these deviations are remarkably similar. When something oscillates in air, within the range of 10 oscillations per second up to many thousands of oscillations per second, then of course we hear it. It's sound. So going back to simple harmonic motion, the so-called perfect form of oscillation or sound is an object moving, causing pressure changes in the air that follow the simple maths of simple harmonic motion. We call that a sine wave, and looked at from the other direction, as a sound engineer, the sine wave is a pure sound, that is, a sound that has a single frequency and nothing else. But all musical sounds have overtones, as we used to call them, harmonics that are related to the basic or fundamental tone. Now all that stuff about simple harmonic motion should start to fall into place, when that weight we were talking about fails to follow the exact path predicted by the simple harmonic motion maths, it actually creates an overtone, or more usually, lots of overtones. Thinking of it as a wave once again, that distortion of the wave not following the simple harmonic motion path creates harmonics. You were expecting that. But did you realise that the harmonics created are called even order harmonics, and that they are all musically related to the fundamental frequency. So when a wave is slightly distorted in one direction, that is, where the lower half of the wave is not exactly the same as the upper half, 
then the overtones created are called even order. They are musically related to the fundamental frequency and they sound pleasant to the ear. Interestingly, this is the commonest form of distortion in nature, starting with the human voice, which is, after all, just breath being blown past the oscillating vocal cords. The breath is moving one way, and so the waveform of the sound produced is not quite symmetrical. It has overtones or harmonics, and so it sounds interesting and pleasant. On the other hand, since we have been able to create pure waves and amplify sound, and particularly since we have been converting that sound into digits, there is another type of overtone that has become more and more common. This is odd order distortion, and it's caused when a waveform is altered from pure form symmetrically top and bottom, which can easily be achieved by, say, overdriving an amplifier or trying to push too much into an A to D converter. This kind of distortion is, of course, entirely unnatural, and so human ears are just not used to it. It sounds harsh and unpleasant, and just to make matters worse, the human ear is very sensitive to it. To put things into perspective, if we amplify a piano, say, and the amplifier is not particularly good, then it's possible that we could add a second harmonic distortion onto the sound of the piano at, say, 0.2%, which means that the waveform we have recorded has deviated from the wave that we put in by one part in 500, which doesn't sound like very much, but it's clearly audible at that sort of level. However, if the distortion created in the amplifier was odd order, that is, 3rd, 5th, 7th, etc., then the amplifier would have to be a whole lot better for it still to sound good. In fact, we would need to have a distortion performance of better than 0.001% to get away with it. And that represents an error of only one part in 100,000. Amplifier classes and overloads. So where is all this leading? It heads towards an appreciation of a number of those terms we glibly use when talking and writing about quality and distortion. Harmonics are everywhere. They are part of all the sounds we hear. But the harmonics that occur in nature, and more specifically in music, are predominantly asymmetric, one-sided, second order, leaning one way like grass or like little hairs in your inner ear that react to the sounds that we hear. Back in the days when all amplifiers were valve, the amplification was done by making small voltage changes to a valve electrode grid, and that caused a much larger change to an electric current flowing between two other electrodes, the cathode and anode, a sort of tap effect, which is why we call it a valve. The accuracy of the amplification was quite reasonable. The distortions or non-linearity produced was in the order of one part per 1000, about 0.1%. And because the amplifier was modifying a current flow in one direction, a bit like vocal cords really, the type of distortion produced was mainly second order, so it was pleasant to the ear. This type of amplifier is called Class A. 
An interesting and really useful attribute to this type of amplifier is that as you push more audio into it, the output keeps going up. But of course, the distortion keeps on increasing. But the point at which it finally gives up is a long way higher than the normal operating level. Then came transistors and a much more refined design philosophy of feedback amplifiers. Distortions could be reduced to unheard of levels. But why then did they sound so awful? The answer to that question is far from simple, but there are a few clues that explain a lot. The first factor is the type of distortion. Transistor and IC amplifiers are designed by engineers who like symmetrical things. They like tidiness and will go to great lengths to achieve the exact specification requirements, but will often, always, miss related factors that are not in the spec. The result is that an amplifier or piece of equipment that has the best looking spec, paradoxically, will usually sound the worst. But it's really not a paradox, it's just the way the specs have evolved. Super low noise performance inevitably means poor overload margin. Poor overload margin means transient distortion. And if the amplifier is a modern IC device, that distortion will be predominantly third order and will sound quite disgusting. Older amplifiers, circuits and complete equipment such as tape recorders had technical specifications that look pathetic today and yet they often sounded really good. I always quote the spec of my first professional tape recorder. It was actually a present. Joe Meek gave it to me. It was an EMI TR51A, a mono full track quarter inch tape machine. The frequency response spec was 100 hertz to 8 kilohertz, and I don't think they even mentioned distortion. Yet many records in the early 60s were mastered on that very machine. Compression and limits. As we have seen, technology and natural hearing don't mix too well. We have to go to extreme lengths so that the kinds of distortions that occur in our reproduced sound are the right sort. Another aspect of sound where the natural world and technology collide is in dynamic range. Prior to the invention of the electronic amplifier, Recording had been a matter of getting as much acoustic information as possible onto the recording medium. At this point, it's worth a quick definition. I'm sure that you know this very well, but just in case, and to avoid confusions, the exact difference between limiters and compressors. A limiter is a device which allows audio signals through, unmodified up to a certain threshold, beyond which the amplifier gain is reduced so that the level never exceeds that threshold. A compressor is an amplifier whose gain reduces as the input level increases. The purpose of a limiter is to eliminate momentary overloads. The purpose of a compressor is to reduce dynamic range. In the real world, there is a very great deal of overlap between the two. While limiters are used in the mastering process to avoid overloads, they are often added to the path in speech or vocal recording where the engineer thinks of them as a way to control transients. Although in practice, when used like that, 
they will work more like a compressor. Compressors are used at all stages of the recording process, by many engineers, myself included. Unless you were recording classical music, where any kind of compression would be and should be spotted and condemned. Although I must admit that I did use the tiniest spot of compression on the violin microphone when I recorded the piece played by Miriam Kramer. The first commercial compressors weren't called compressors at all. They were called levelling amplifiers, and it's obvious why. These were variable gain amplifiers that automatically controlled the level of dialogue signals in film soundtrack recording. Record producers and audio engineers very quickly adopted them for use in sound recording studios. Of course, very many records in the late 20s and 30s were made in the film studios of the time. A popular type of compressor developed in the late 1930s was the one that eventually turned into the highly commercially successful Universal Audio LA2. And this is where the definitions start to get somewhat mixed. The LA2 works on the principle of having some device that reduces the audio signal by shorting it out when the level gets too high, which, strictly speaking, describes a limiter rather than a compressor. The LA2 is a valve amplifier, but connected from its grid to the grid bias point, actually ground, is a photosensitive resistor made of cadmium sulfide. When the audio signal gets above a threshold, a voltage is produced in a sidechain that activates a photoluminescent panel that is mounted against the cadmium sulfide cell. This makes the resistance of the cell reduce which in turn effectively alters the gain of the amplifier. Much later, in the 1970s, when LEDs became readily available, the opening was clearly there for an improved version to be designed, but it was not until 1992 that any serious development took place. That was the time when I needed a compressor for some recordings I was doing. It was actually the soundtrack for a travelog video. I was trying to do the whole thing on a shoestring budget and certainly could not afford to buy any of the compressors on the market. So, I remembered the way we used to make compressors in the 60s and applied a little bit of servo amplifier thinking to the problem. The result was the original Joe Meek compressor. But time moves on and in 2003, with a brand new and less exotic colour, I developed a much more versatile stereo compressor for mastering, combining the requirements for limiting and compression and with the introduction of some tricks with imaging. The TF Pro P38 processes the stereo audio signal into sum and difference. That is, it adds the left and right signals to get sum and electronically subtracts right from left to get difference sometimes called M and S, or middle and side. The compression and limiting is done in that processed state. The signals are then reconverted back into left and right. The reason for all of that complication is because when we listen to any sound source, our ears are very sensitive to shifts in the sound, left and right. Trying to compress two linked channels with optical compressors is never very accurate, and there are always small errors in the compression depth, causing left-right shifts in the image. 
This is completely eliminated when using summon difference. Any errors show up as tiny changes in width, and this is not recognizable by the ear. So there we have it, the third instalment of our lecture series with Ted Fletcher. I really do hope that you are enjoying these and getting something from it, and you'll be glad to know that I'm not just sitting idle while these are going out. Um, this week has been a bit of a mental week. I've actually, I've actually managed to get to Abbey Road Studios twice in the last two weeks, which um, feels a bit of a uh, sort of clang name drop. <laughs> but it's nice. It's nice to share this stuff with you, and I know that there are people who are listening to this that will enjoy that. Um, I did a... Uh, a performance in Studio One, um, and uh, got to spend a good amount of time in Studio Two um, while we were sort of setting up for that show. Um, and then I went back about ten days later for a recording session, and it's a, it's just such an incredibly special place. And if you're interested in looking at any of the pictures uh, of the studio and all that kind of stuff, you can do that on my Instagram, which is at All You Need Is Drums. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, which is if you just search All You Need Is Drums. And there are links to those things on my website, which is allyouneedisdrums.com. So yeah, I took loads of pictures of all of the uh, the juicy bits of gear <laughs> that I saw, because I'm a nerd, like all of you guys, which is why we listen to this podcast. Um, okay, so that just leaves me to say, if you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, my email address is joe at allyouneedisdrums.com, or you can do that through my website, allyouneedisdrums.com. You can also go on there and find information about the isolated drum stems that I send out. And you can also purchase a mug or a CD to support the podcast or even make a donation. Um, the stuff I mentioned at the beginning of the show. Um, and I would like to also say a big thank you to Adam Mallet for the artwork he designs for this podcast. To Joe Kane for the intro and outro music. And to Rory for editing and doing all of the fantastic legwork he does to get this podcast to you guys. Um, thank you for listening and I will be back next week with some more. Goodbye!